welcome to A-Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on neurodegenerative disease research so that you can stay up to date with the newest findings. Every month, our team of scientists will sort and organize the titles into themes and present shortened versions of the abstracts. We'll make sure to mention the title, the journal, the first author, and the last author for each publication. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast helpful. Hey everyone, this is Nyla. Welcome to the Modifiable Risk Factors episode for June 2020. I'll be your host today, and I have about 24 papers to cover. I've divided today's papers into five sub-themes. So we'll start with some papers on cognitive reserve, then a few on diet, then I have 10 papers in medical comorbidities, two papers on sleep, and then one new tool for assessing environmental risk factors of AD. Okay, so let's get started. This first section on cognitive reserve is primarily papers focused on neuroprotective factors that might slow cognitive decline, but we also have some papers on psychological factors that could increase the risk of AD. So we'll start off with two papers that explore whether bilingualism is neuroprotective for AD, and the first of these uses MRI or magnetic resonance imaging to assess if bilingualism changes brain volume. The title is Brain Structure in Bilingual Compared to Monolingual Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease, Proof of Concept. And the first author is Raji, the last author is Mendez, and it was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. So in this paper, the authors compared brain volumes in matched bilinguals versus monolinguals with AD. The word lingual is hard to say repeatedly, apparently. So to do so, they took MRI from AD patients and adjusted correlations between bilingualism and brain regional volumes for age, gender, and total intracranial volume. The authors found that bilinguals had higher brain volumes in 37 structures. This correlation was most significant within the brainstem and ventral diencephalon, but also in the thalamus and possibly the hippocampus, although the latter was not statistically significant. No brain volumes were larger in monolinguals. The author suggests that their results could represent neural substrates for increased cognitive reserve in bilingualism, and that future studies should extend these findings to cognitively normal persons at risk for AD. Okay, this next study looked at what type or degree of bilingualism is necessary for neuroprotection. The title is Active Bilingualism Delays the Onset of Mild Cognitive Impairment. The authors are first author Calabria and last author Costa, and this was published in Neuropsychologia. The authors tested the hypothesis that active bilingualism defined as the continuous use of two languages as opposed to second language exposition only, may protect protect against cognitive decline. They also investigate if bilingualism acting as a cognitive reserve factor could be explained by an advantage within the executive control system. To do so, they collected clinical measures of the onset and severity of cognitive symptoms in patients with mild cognitive impairment, I'll refer to this as MCI quite often throughout this podcast, or with AD, with different degrees of language experience and usage of Catalan and Spanish. Participants were also tested on four executive control tasks and one long-term memory recognition, recognition task. Using multiple regression analyses, they found that active bilingualism was a significant predictor of delay in the age at onset for all the clinical measures in MCI, but not in AD patients. This effect was independent of occupation, educational level, and job attainment across the individual's lifespan. They also report that active bilingualism did not alter performance on executive control tasks, but the authors did find an effect for conflict resolution. Interesting. Overall, they suggest that compensatory mechanisms may play a role in protecting against cognitive decline. Okay, that's interesting. I 
I wonder how much the difference between the languages you learn, like if you learn, say, English and Chinese as opposed to Catalan and Spanish, I wonder if that would make a difference there. Maybe I'll email the authors and, and ask them to do that study next. Okay, so continuing on with neuroprotective factors, this next paper looks at whether education could be used as a proxy for cognitive reserve. The title is Education as Proxy for Cognitive Reserve in Large Elderly Memory Clinic, Window of Benefit. The first author is um, Steichenberg, Steichenberg, no, sorry, Steichenborg. Ugh. Okay, the last author is Klaus, that's easier. This was published in the Journal of Alzheimer Disease. The authors examined the cross-sectional effect of cognitive reserve on cognition in relation to levels of neurodegeneration in a large, elderly, single-center memory clinic population. They had a large sample size, including patients with subjective cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, and AD. The authors used education as a proxy for cognitive reserve and visually rated medial temporal lobe atrophy, or MTA, on CT scans as a parameter of neurodegeneration. They found that education was significantly related to all measures of cognition, and that more highly educated patients had more advanced levels of MTA at the same level of cognition. In other words, a significant interaction effect indicated that with more advanced medial temporal lobe atrophy, less cognitive decline was shown in higher educated patients. All results were stronger or only present in demented compared to non-demented patients, but were no longer significant in those with lowest overall cognition, indicating a window of cognitive reserve benefit. Overall, this study indicates that education is a very strong determinant of cognition in an elderly memory clinic population. This next paper looks at forms of early life cognitive enrichment that might decrease the risk of dementia regardless of educational level. So the title is Association of Early Life Cognitive Enrichment with Alzheimer's Disease Pathological Changes and Cognitive Decline. It was published in JAMA Neurology. And the first author, yet another difficult name, uh, I'll give it my best, is Oveskaran. And the last author is Bennett. This group examined how indicators of early life cognitive enrichment might result in slower cognitive decline and decreased dementia in late life. It was called the Rush Memory and Aging Project and was a clinical pathological community-based cohort study which followed participants for a mean of seven years before death with annual cognitive and clinical assessments. Over 2,000 participants enrolled over a 20-year period and post-mortem data was collected from around 800 participants uh, to assess global AD pathology. Self-report was used to obtain four indicators of early life cognitive enrichment. So this was early life socioeconomic status, availability of cognitive resources at 12 years of age, frequency of participation in cognitively stimulating activities, and early life foreign language instruction. When controlling for age at death, sex, and educational level, the authors found that a higher level of early life cognitive enrichment was directly associated with a lower global AD pathology scale. Score, not scale. Cognitive enrichment was also directly associated with less cognitive decline, uh, as well as indirectly through the lower AD pathology. So we'll move on from cognitive enrichment to cognitive activities in older adults. So this next study is called The Role of Polygenic Score and Cognitive Activity in Cognitive Functioning Among Older Adults. It was published in Gerontologist. The first author is Shin and the last author is Kim. This study explored whether the intensity of cognitive activities could moderate the relationship between a genetic predisposition for developing Alzheimer's disease and cognitive functioning among older adults in the U.S. The authors also examined whether the same moderating effects were dependent on different measures of cognition. 
They used a data set from the 2000 to 2014 waves of the Health and Retirement Study and the Consumption and Activities Mail Survey, with a sample of nearly 3,800 individuals aged 50 years or older. Polygenic score for AD acted as a genetic trait for cognitive functioning, and a variety of cognitive or passive activities were assessed. The authors used total cognition, fluid intelligence, and crystallized intelligence as proxies for cognitive functioning. After controlling for covariates, they found that reading books, using a computer, and playing cards, games, or solving puzzles had a positive effect on cognitive functioning, specifically fluid intelligence. An additional hour spent reading books moderated the negative effect of AD polygenic scores on cognition, suggesting that this could be protective for adults genetically predisposed to developing AD. All right, duly noted. This next study is switching gears a bit. It looks at how social networks and regular contact with family might affect cognitive function in older adults. It is titled, short and sweet, Family Ties and Aging in a Multi-Ethnic Cohort. It was published in the Journal of Aging and Health, and the first author is Ying, and the last author is Zahadne. As lack of social support has previously been linked to lower cognitive function and cognitive decline, the authors studied the effects of family ties on cognitive trajectories in various ethnic groups. In a sample size of 1,420 older adults who are non-demented at baseline, the authors used multi-group latent growth curve models to analyze associations between the number of relatives, so this includes children, grandchildren, siblings, and others, contacted within the past month at baseline and the cognitive trajectories. Memory, visual-spatial abilities, and language were tested at baseline and at 18 and 24-month follow-ups for up to six visits. The authors also used inferential analyses to determine the differential effects of sex and gender, as well as race and ethnicity for each family tie. Overall, contact with more relatives was associated with better initial memory and language functioning across both race and ethnicity and sex and gender, suggesting that peripheral rather than immediate family networks may be more likely to affect cognitive function in older adults. Okay, so the last two papers in the sub-theme are focused on more psychological factors that could be either neuroprotective or risk factors for dementia. This first one is on personality traits and is titled The Effect of Personality Traits on Risk of Incident Pre-Dementia Syndromes. The first author is Ayers and the last author is Verghese. And the journal is... Uh, the Journal of American Geriatric Society. Building on existing association between personality traits and dementia, this study examined their role as predictors of incident pre-dementia, motor cognitive risk, and mild cognitive impairment syndromes. The authors looked at five personality traits, so this is neuroticism, extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and openness, and the risk of incident uh, mild cognitive impairment or motor cognitive risk in 524 non-demented participants aged 65 years and older. They used Cox proportional hazard analysis, adjusted for demographics and disease burden, and used this to assess the risk of each pre-dementia syndrome based on baseline personality traits as measured by the Big Five inventory. In a median follow-up of three years, they found that openness was associated with a reduced risk of developing incident motoric cognitive risk, which by the way is marked by a slowness in gait, and that neuroticism increased the risk of incident non-amnestic MCI, mild cognitive impairment, and they found that no personality traits were associated with either amnestic or overall MCI. These associations remain significant even after considering the confounding effects of lifestyle or mood and suggest that there is a distinct relationship between personality traits and the development of certain pre-dementia syndromes. 
And the last paper in this category examined whether negative thinking could influence both cognitive and pathological measures of AD. The title is Repetitive Negative Thinking is Associated with Amyloid, Tau, and Cognitive Decline. The authors are first author Marchand, last author Villeneuve, and this is the Prevent AD Research Group, and was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. So just for some context, the cognitive debt hypothesis proposes that repetitive negative thinking, which is a modifiable process common to many psychological risk factors for Alzheimer's, may itself increase the risk. The authors wanted to examine this relationship between repetitive negative thinking and markers of AD empirically and see how it compares with anxiety and depression symptoms. To do so, they took longitudinal cognitive assessments from 292 older adults, including individuals from the Prevent AD and the IMAP Plus cohorts who had amyloid and tau positron emission tomography or PET scans. Using repetitive negative thinking, anxiety, and depression questionnaires, the authors determined that negative thinking was associated with decline in global cognition immediate and delayed memory, as well as global amyloid and enterorhinal tau deposition. These relationships remained after adjusting for potential confounders and suggest that repetitive negative thinking is associated with decline in cognitive domains in early AD, as well as with their neuroimaging biomarkers. And that's it for the sub-theme. This next section is on the role of diet in cognitive function in AD, and it includes three papers. The first one is on the effects of high-fat diet in a mouse model of AD. The title is High-Fat Diet Worsens Alzheimer's Disease-Related Behavioral Abnormalities and Neuropathology in APP-PS1 Mice, but not by synergistically decreasing cerebral blood flow. It was published in Scientific Reports by first author Bracco and last author Schaffer. Cerebral blood flow reductions are an early feature of AD and are also linked to obesity. The authors previously showed that non-flowing capillaries caused by adhered neutrophils contribute to cerebral blood flow reduction in mouse models of AD. In this study, they tested links between obesity and AD by feeding APP slash PS1, or I'll just call these AD mice, a high-fat diet, and evaluating behavioral, physiological, and pathological changes. They found trends towards poorer memory performance and an impairment of sensory motor function in the AD mice fed a high-fat diet, and impaired social interactions with either the APP-PS1 genotype or a high-fat diet. The high-fat diet also increased amyloid beta monomers and plaques in the AD mice, as well as brain inflammation. The authors also used a crowdsourced citizen science approach to analyze imaging data to determine the impact of the APP-PS1 genotype and a high-fat diet on capillary stalling and cerebral blood flow. Surprisingly, they did not see an increase in the number of non-flowing capillaries or a worsening of the cerebral blood flow deficit in AD mice fed a high-fat diet as compared to controls, and this suggests that capillary stalling is not a mechanistic link between this diet and increased severity of AD in mice. Nonetheless, uh, reducing capillary stalling by blocking neutrophil adhesion improved cerebral blood flow and short-term memory function in AD mice, even when they were fed a high-fat diet. The next paper looks at Mediterranean diet, and this is in humans this time. They look at the potential for AD prevention and also determine whether older American adults actually adhere to the diet. This paper is called NHANES 2011-2014, reveals cognition of U.S. older adults may benefit from better adaptation to the Mediterranean diet. This was published in Nutrients. The first author is Taylor and the last author is Sullivan. The authors used two national health and nutrition examination survey cycles, so that's 2011 and 2014, 
to determine population estimates of Mediterranean diet adherence among U.S. adults aged 60 years and older. In a sample size of around 3,000 participants, they found that the majority did not adhere to the Mediterranean diet, although this varied across demographic characteristics. When they assessed the cross-sectional relationship between diet adherence and cognitive performance, the authors found that those who adhered to the diet the most had a lower odds ratio of low cognitive performance on three out of five measures. The study concludes that Mediterranean diet interventions are a departure from the usual diet of older U.S. adults, but do show potential for AD prevention trials. And the last paper in this section reports that a carbohydrate-rich diet increases the risk of AD and dementia amongst APOE4 allele carriers. So the title of this paper is Refined carbohydrate-rich diet is associated with long-term risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease and apolipoprotein E, E4 uh, allele carriers. The first author is Jean Trault, the last author is Artero, and this was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. So refined carbohydrates have been shown to worsen AD in animal models, and so the authors wanted to test this association epidemiologically, particularly amongst APOE4 allele carriers. They quantified the glycemic load of over 2,700 elderly participants from the French three-city study in order to estimate refined carbohydrate intake. Using this data, they looked at the relationship between glycemic load and risk of dementia and AD, as well as the interaction with APOE4 over a 12-year period. After adjusting for potential confounders, the authors determined that high afternoon snack glycemic load was associated with increased dementia and AD risk in APOE4 carriers. And fittingly, I actually had a tarte aux fraises for my afternoon high glycemic load snack today. Hopefully I'm not an APOE4 carrier. So this brings us to our next section, which is 10 papers on what I've termed medical comorbidities. And the first one is a systemic review and meta-analysis on proton pump inhibitors. So these are medications that are used to treat ulcers or other gastrointestinal issues, uh, perhaps resulting from those sugary afternoon snacks. It is called, Protein Pump Inhibitors Do Not Increase the Risk of Dementia, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis of Prospective Studies. The first author is Desai and the last author is Sharma, and it was published in Diseases of the Esophagus. To resolve some debate regarding proton pump inhibitor, or PPI, use and AD risk, the authors conducted an extensive literature search in PubMed, Embase, Google Scholar, and Cochrane for prospective studies examining the risk of cognitive decline and dementia among PPI versus non-PPI users. The primary outcome of their search was pooled hazard rate of any dementia among PPI users compared with non-PPI users, and secondary outcomes were pooled hazard rate of AD and risk with long-term PPI follow-up studies. The authors conducted various statistical and meta-analysis magic on a total of six studies with over 300,000 elderly subjects. Pooled hazard ratio of any dementia was 1.16, and results remained unchanged when only studies with long-term PPI use, which means over five years, were analyzed. The pooled hazard ratio for AD was 1.06, although there was substantial heterogeneity among studies. Meta-regression did not show a significant role of age at study start, nor of the duration of PPI use, to incident dementia. Overall, the results of this systematic review and meta-analysis do not show a significant relationship between proton pump inhibitor use and dementia in prospective studies with at least a five-year follow-up. So we'll stay with gastrointestinal research for the time being. So this next study looks at inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, and whether it presents a risk of Alzheimer's disease 
And this is based on all the fascinating work going on on the gut-brain axis. So this paper is entitled, Inflammatory Bowel Disease is Associated with Higher Dementia Risk, a Nationwide Longitudinal Study. It was published in the journal Gut, and the first author is Zhang, and the last author is Chen. So as recent findings have suggested a connection between IBD and Parkinson's disease, the authors wanted to know whether the same relationship exists within Alzheimer's disease. Using the Taiwanese National Health Insurance Research Database, the authors conducted a comparative analysis between patients with IBD aged 45 years and older and healthy controls so as to to determine the risk of dementia following IBD diagnosis. Controls were matched based on sex, access to healthcare, income, and dementia-related comorbidities, and all individuals were followed for up to 16 years. The authors found that overall incidence of dementia among patients with IBD was significantly elevated to 5.5%, and this is compared to 1.4% in controls, and that being diagnosed with IBD also led to an earlier dementia diagnosis. Among different dementia types, the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease showed the highest increase and was not different by sex or subtype of IBD. So, for instance, they looked at Crohn's disease versus other forms of inflammatory bowel diseases. These findings highlight the need for future research to determine the exact relationship between IBD and dementia. Next up, we have two papers that relate to the comorbidity between diabetes and mild cognitive impairment or dementia. The first is entitled Mild Cognitive Impairment Subtypes and Type 2 Diabetes in Elderly Subjects. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine by first author Valenza and last author uh, Pelikionim. Oh, geez, that's a hard one. I hope that none of these authors are listening to me butcher their names. Um, It starts with a P, and the rest is a complicated series of letters. But I hope you can find the paper uh, in the bibliography after. So, type 2 diabetes is correlated with both amnestic and non-amnestic mild cognitive impairment, again MCI, And in this study, the authors wanted to determine whether it characterizes a unique cognitive profile in elderly patients. They explored the association between glycated hemoglobin levels, this is HbA1c, diabetes duration, insulin, and oral hypoglycemic agent treatment, and looked at subtypes of MCI in or mild cognitive impairment in elderly diabetic patients. Their sample consisted of 39 MCI subjects with type 2 diabetes and 37 MCI subjects without. They matched for age, educational level, and mini mental state examination scores. The authors found that non-diabetic MCI subjects performed worse in memory and language domains than those with type 2 diabetes, and that the amnestic subtype of MCI was more frequent in non-diabetics. Within the diabetic MCI group, high HbA1c levels correlate with episodic memory, specifically immediate recall, and diabetes duration, where some other cognitive indexes of memory, attention, and visual-spatial ability correlate with insulin treatment. So that leads nicely into this next paper, which is more on the mechanistic level, Uh, and seeks to determine some biomarkers of brain insulin signaling. And it is titled, Brain Insulin Signaling, Alzheimer Disease Pathology and Cognitive Function. That's a nice and easy title. It was published in the Annals of Neurology by first author Arvanitakis, Arvanitakis and last author Arnold. This study examined associations between molecular markers of brain insulin signaling with AD and cognition among older persons with or without diabetes. It was derived from a community-based cohort study and comprised of 150 individuals, so half had diabetes and the other half did not, and they were matched by sex, age at death, and education. 
The authors measured insulin signaling in the middle frontal, sorry, in the middle frontal gyrus cortex using ELISA immunohistochemistry and stimulation of postmortem brain tissue with insulin. Postmortem data documented Alzheimer's neuropathology, whereas clinical evaluations were taken using multiple neuropsychological tests in order to assess cognitive function shortly before death. So using this data, the authors examined associations of brain insulin signaling with diabetes, AD, and the level of cognition. They found that brain IRS1 and AKT phosphorylation were similar in persons with or without diabetes, but that AKT phosphorylation was associated with the global AD pathology score. Secondary analysis showed that normalized phosphorylated AKT1 was positively correlated with both the amyloid burden and tau tangle density, as well as lower levels of global cognitive function. These results suggest that brain AKT phosphorylation, a critical node in the signaling of insulin and other growth factors, is associated with Alzheimer's neuropathology as well as lower cognitive function. So switching gears, this next paper reports a significant increase in the incidence of dementia in individuals with impaired vision. It is called Low Vision and the Risk of Dementia, a nationwide population-based cohort study. The first author is Paik, and the last author is Na, and it was published in Scientific Reports. While previous studies have found an association between vision loss and cognitive impairment, it remains unclear whether this is a causal relationship. So in this study, the authors investigated the association between low vision and dementia within the Korean population by analyzing data from over 6 million subjects aged 40 years and older, and this was using the National Health Insurance Service database. Statistical analyses showed that subjects with more severe visual impairments or visual loss are at increased risk of dementia, uh, including Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, after adjusting for compounding variables, and that the hazard ratios of dementia increase as visual acuity worsens. Okay, again switching gears, this next paper is looking at seizures, so how frequently they occur in Alzheimer's disease and how this alters uh, the disease progression. This paper is titled, Seizures in Alzheimer's Disease are Highly Recurrent and Associated with Poor Disease Course. The first author is Föklein, and the last author is Danek, and this was published in the Journal of Neurology. Seizures are an important comorbidity in AD, but there are conflicting reports regarding the clinical parameters associated with seizures in AD, and some are lacking entirely. The study analyzed data from the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center to investigate the associations between seizure prevalence in AD and disease duration, age of AD onset, and cognitive performance. From data of over 20,700 individuals, the authors determined that seizure recurrence risk was 70% within 7.5 months in AD dementia, and that seizure history was associated with an earlier age of onset of cognitive symptoms, as well as worse cognitive and functional performance. Seizures were more frequent in AD dementia than normal controls, or healthy controls, and the prevalence increased with the duration of dementia, rising to just over 5% at 11 years of disease duration. These findings suggest that 80 patients are at high risk of recurring seizures, and that these are associated with a poor course of cognitive symptoms. In conclusion, the authors highlight the importance of assessing seizure history in AD patients in order to inform therapeutic decisions, and the necessity of systematic treatment studies of AD-associated epilepsy. So these next two papers are on hormonal therapies and how they might be uh, risk factors for AD. This first one is on androgen deprivation therapy, which is used for prostate cancer. And the title is Alzheimer gene BIN1 may simultaneously influence dementia risk and androgen deprivation therapy dosage in prostate cancer. It was 
published in the American Journal of Clinical Oncology by first author Lehrer and last author Reinstein. Not Einstein. And those are actually the only two authors on this paper. So as I mentioned, androgen deprivation therapy, or ADT, is extensively used to treat prostate cancer, but it's unclear whether this might affect cognition or AD in the men receiving this treatment, and this remains a, a large subject of debate. So in this paper, the authors used the Cancer Genome Atlas to examine the relationship in men with prostate cancer between genes implicated in AD and genes implicated in prostate cancer. To do so, they examined the genomics of 492 prostate cancer cases, and uh, this was in the TCGA prostate cancer dataset, if you care about that. And when they conducted co-occurrence analysis, they found that alterations in the prostate cancer gene speckle-type POZ protein, this is also referred to as SPOP, uh, significantly co-occurred with alterations in the AD gene BIN1. The presence of somatic mutations, either deleterious and or missense in frame mutations in SPOP deranges BIN1 gene expression and increased expression of SPOP in 492 prostate cancers was associated with reduced survival. BIN1 loss in AD allows phosphorylated tau to be missorted to synapses, which likely alters the integrity of the post-synapse and reduces the important release of physiological forms of tau. In terms of the role of androgen deprivation therapy, the authors suggest that the treatment dosage reflects the severity of disease, which in turn determines, or sorry, which is in turn determined by the genetics of the tumor itself, and this includes the BIN1 gene. Overall, their analysis of the TCGA data does not support the idea that androgen deprivation therapy causes AD or dementia. So moving on to a different hormone, this next study shows that lower levels of testosterone may be associated with an increased risk of all-cause dementia or AD. And so the title of this study is Testosterone and Cognitive Impairment or Dementia in Middle-Aged or Aging Males, Causation and Intervention, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. It was published in the Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, that's the word, and Neurology by first author Zhang and last author Li. And this meta-analysis looked at the association between testosterone levels and the risk of dementia and the effectiveness of testosterone supplement treatment in patients with cognitive impairment or dementia. The authors used multiple search engines to find 27 risk factors studies with 18,600 participants in total. These studies reported inconsistent results on the association between testosterone levels and the risk of all-cause dementia or AD. So the authors conducted their own meta-analysis and they found an increased overall risk of all-cause dementia with decreasing total testosterone levels. They also found that testosterone supplement treatment may improve general cognition or general cognitive function and motor response in the short term based on several measures, but it remains to be determined whether it can improve general cognitive function in patients with cognitive impairment or AD. So moving on from hormones, this next study looks at blood pressure and kidney function. And the title of this study is Kidney Disease, Intensive Hypertension Treatment and Risk for Dementia and Mild Cognitive Impairment, the Systolic Blood Pressure Intervention Trial. This is by first author Corella Tamura and last author Vina, and was published in the Journal of American Society of Nephrology. And it was conducted uh, in collaboration or perhaps as a part of the SPRINT research group. So intensively treating hypertension may benefit cardiovascular diseases and cognitive function, but at the short-term expense of reduced kidney function. The authors assessed markers of kidney function and the effect of intensive hypertension treatment on incidence of dementia and MCI in over 9,000 participants in the randomized systolic blood pressure intervention trial. 
They categorized participants according to baseline and longitudinal changes in two measures of kidney function, namely estimated glomerular filtration rate. I've tried that word so many times and I still can't get it right, so I'm just going to abbreviate that to EGFR. And the second measure is urinary albumin to creatinine ratios. Using multivariable adjusted analyses, the authors found no significant association between baseline EGFR and risk for dementia or MCI. However, time-varying analyses showed that a greater than 30% EGFR decline was associated with a higher risk for probable dementia, and incident EGFR was associated with a higher risk for MCI. These kidney events occurred more frequently in the intensive treatment group, but there was no evidence that they altered the effect of intensive treatment on dementia and MCI incidence. The authors conclude that declining kidney function measured by EGFR is associated with increased risk for probable dementia and MCI in hypertensive adults, regardless of the intensity of hypertension treatment. So here's another paper. This is moving more into surgical interventions. So this paper looks at the effects of surgical hospitalization on the risk of AD. And the title is Association of Surgical Hospitalization with Brain Amyloid Deposition, the Arthrosclerosis Risk in Communities Positron Emission Tomography Study. And they abbreviate this to ARIC-PET or ARIC-PET study. This is by first author Walker, last author Brown, and was published in Anesthesiology. The study examined the association of surgical hospitalization with subsequent brain beta amyloid deposition in cognitively normal older adults. So the ERIC-PET study is a prospective cohort study of 346 participants without dementia who underwent, here's another crazy word, florbitapir, florbitapir, it sounds like an animal, but it's not, it's a pet imaging uh, type of PET imaging. Anyway, they underwent that in order to measure brain amyloid levels. The authors also gathered hospitalization and surgical information of the participants over the preceding 24 years. Of the 313 participants included in their analysis, 72% had a prior hospitalization and 50% had a prior surgical hospitalization. Elevated amyloid occurred in 87 of the 156, so that's about 56% of participants with previous surgical hospitalization, and about 52% of participants who had no previous hospitalization. After adjusting for confounders, participants with previous surgical hospitalizations did not show an increased odds uh, ratio of elevated brain amyloid. However, in a pre-specified secondary analysis, participants with previous surgical hospitalization did demonstrate increased odds of elevated amyloid when compared with participants hospitalized without surgery, but these results were attenuated and non-significant when alternative thresholds for amyloid positive status were used. So, overall... The results do not support an association between surgical hospitalization and elevated brain amyloid. All right, this next study is also tangentially related to surgery in that it looks at anesthesia associated with AD or whether anesthesia is associated with AD, but this time it's in a rat model. So the title is Anesthetic-Dependent Changes in Gene Expression Following Acute and Chronic Exposure in the Rodent Brain. The first author is Upton, the last author is Cassio, and this was published in Scientific Reports. Anesthesia has been predicted to affect gene expression of the memory-related regions of the brain, including the primary visual cortex, and might increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease through neuroinflammation. The authors analyzed the expression of over 22,000 genes and nearly 130,000 transcripts using oligonucleotide microarrays to examine the brain expression profiles in Sprague Dolly rats following exposure to either chronic or acute doses of common anesthetics. 
Their screen identified multiple genes that responded to anesthetics, most of which had not been previously identified as being responsive to either acute or chronic anesthesia. They may be useful candidate genes in understanding the molecular pathways mediating anesthetic effects in the brain and how these mechanisms could play a role in neurodegeneration. Alright, so let's move into uh, another form of altered state of consciousness. This is sleep. So this is our next sub-theme and we have two papers in this category. And I would say both give good reason to get a good night's sleep or maybe take a nap um, after this podcast. I'm sure it's necessary after listening to me drone on for so long. So this first study is actigraphy estimated sleep and 24-hour activity rhythms and the risk of dementia. So this was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia by first author Lysen and last author Ikram. And in this study, the authors investigated the associations between objective estimates of sleep and 24-hour activity rhythms with risk of dementia. They took valid actigraphy data from around 1,300 non-demented participants within the prospective population-based Rotterdam study cohort, and they followed these up for about 11 years to determine incident dementia. During this follow-up period, 60 individuals developed dementia, 49 of which had Alzheimer's disease. Poor sleep, as indicated by a variety of measures, was associated with increased risk of dementia, particularly Alzheimer's disease. Conversely, there was no association between 24-hour activity rhythms and dementia risk. The authors suggest that actigraphy estimated, oof, sorry, actigraphy estimated nighttime wakefulness may be further targeted in etiologic or risk prediction studies. And the second paper is entitled Obstructive Sleep Apnea and Cognitive Decline in Mild to Moderate Alzheimer's Disease. This was published in European Respiratory Journal by first author Georges and last author Pignol Ripoll. This study evaluated whether untreated obstructive sleep apnea influences the magnitude of cognitive decline or specific subdomains of cognition in patients with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. This was a single center study in which almost 150 patients were recruited prospectively from a cognitive impairment unit and underwent overnight polysomnography. At a 12-month follow-up, the authors found that cognitive scores on the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale were actually better in the obstructive sleep apnea group than in the non-sleep apnea group. However, this was uh, by a statistically significant but not a clinically significant margin. I'm sure someone knows what the difference is there. I don't work clinically, so I don't know the difference. Regardless, they did not find group differences in the various cognitive subdomains after one year, nor in global cognition after a three-year follow-up. And this brings us to our last study for this episode. So we've classified this one as a novel tool for assessing risk factors. Uh, specifically, the authors looked at disadvantaged neighborhoods and the adverse health exposures related to living in disadvantaged neighborhoods. So the title of this study is The Area Deprivation Index, a Novel Tool for Harmonizable Risk Assessment in Alzheimer's Disease Research. The first author is Tuesdorf, and the last author is Kind or Kind, and this was published in the Journal of uh, Alzheimer's and Dementia. The authors examined whether a publicly available geocoded disadvantage metric could be useful for integrating social determinants of health into models of cognitive aging. They used the Validated Area Deprivation Index and two cognitive aging cohorts to quantify census block-level poverty, education, housing, and employment characteristics for the neighborhoods of over 2,000 older adults. Using this data, they looked at the association between neighborhood disadvantage and cognitive performance in domains sensitive to age-related change. They found that participants in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods were younger, less often college-educated or white, and more often female than those in less disadvantaged neighborhoods. 
Residents in these disadvantaged neighborhoods performed worse on tests of executive function, verbal learning, and memory. The author suggests that this geospatial metric of neighborhood disadvantage could be useful in studying socially rooted risk factors of AD and in prioritizing high-risk communities for research, recruitment, and intervention. And that brings us to the end of the episode. You've been listening to Modifiable Risk Factors, the June 2020 edition. So as a reminder, we are now covering all of the papers or all of the peer-reviewed papers published per month. So I hope this has been useful for you. And I look forward to speaking at you in the next episode or the next month. All right, see ya. That's it for this episode. A huge thank you to the team that is working on sorting, summarizing, and scripting these abstracts, as well as the operations behind Aminder. The music is from Journey of a New Transmitter by Nusha Kamesh, musician and fellow scientist, and now a member of the Aminder team. You can find the original piece and her other music on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or on her YouTube channel, AK Music. Interested in joining the team? Give us a shout! We can always use help with content development, podcast editing, advertising, and you can be part of a new and exciting venture. Reach us by email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. Oh, we're also on Facebook now. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list if you want access to the bibliography for each of our episodes. The references come with timestamps. Hmm, timestamps. So you can more easily locate the paper that caught your interest. Check our notes below for details on how to sign up. And very close to this, you'll also find a link to our feedback survey. Because, yeah, your feedback matters to us. So please, pretty please, let us know how we can make this podcast a better tool for you. And last but not least, thank you for tuning in with us. And on this note, we hope you found our podcast useful and accessible. Until next time.